Tom continues teaching through 1 Corinthians. I'll be reading chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an ear, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable. For as our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? 
All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Father, thank you in your providence that you give gifts for us to use for the service and building up of the body. May we be purposeful and intentional in that service to the body to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, last Sunday, we focused our attention on uh, the giver, master, and manager of spiritual gifts, which is, of course, who is, of course, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we, we learned from the passage that his foundational purpose for distributing different gifts to different members of the body so that every single child of God has one or more gifts is to build up the church in unity and in effectiveness. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul made sure that we're clear on the fact that the, the determination of who gets which gift or gifts has nothing to do with us. <laughs> kind of like a lot of the discussion this morning. Um, it's not... The giving of gifts is not based on our skills, our talents, our native abilities. It's based entirely on the sovereign determination of the giver of the gifts, who is the Holy Spirit. Near the beginning and end of this chapter, Paul mentions some of the gifts that are given by the Spirit to various members of the body of Christ. Early in the chapter, he lists the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, that one surprises some people. Gifts of healing, affecting of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, kinds of tongues. And bear in mind always that that word tongues is very often in the New Testament translated languages. languages. Uh, and then interpretation of tongues. Now in the concluding verses of the chapter, Paul mentions some of those same gifts and he adds another one, the gift of apostleship. Clearly a gift that Paul himself possessed by the Spirit's doing. In other passages like Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, Paul mentions several other gifts, including evangelism, helps, service, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. And by the way, if you're wondering about biblical examples of individuals who had more than one spiritual gift, I would submit that Paul was a likely example. He was gifted as an apostle. He also says that he spoke in tongues and he definitely performed miracles. As I pointed out, and, I, and by the way, anytime we talk about a person performing miracles, that's just God using the person as an instrument. That's really important. <laughs> So that anyone who's involved in that process doesn't think that it's about them. As I uh, pointed out last week, no passage in the New Testament presents a complete list of spiritual gifts. And I find no reason to believe that God even intended to give us a comprehensive list that we could assemble from the Bible of every single gift of special enablement that the Spirit gives. I'm not sure he's not still coming up with new ones. 
As I pointed out last week, none of the passages that lists gifts of the Spirit makes any effort to explain how each gift works. And theologians have wrestled with those definitions and explanations ever since the church has existed. That should tell us something, guys. We don't have a God who likes to hide important stuff from his children. Okay? And so when there's something that he has withheld from us, we shouldn't get too excited about it, right? The reason that those facts that I just stated should not concern us is really very simple, and that is that you and I don't necessarily need to know which gifts have been given to us or how our particular gifts work in order for the Holy Spirit to put those gifts to use through us as he intends. If any of us needs to know what our gift is, and I, I believe that that happens, he'll see to it that we know. Again, we do not have a God who withholds important things from his children. Prophets and apostles died so we could have the Bible, so we could have God's revelation of himself to us. God is not one who withholds things we need to know. All right. And, and by the way, I believe that when God does make a gift known, that he very, very often does that through the people of God. And we, we discussed that some last time as well. Um, as we, and how does that happen? It happens as each of us goes about doing the things that every believer is commissioned to do. As we go about loving God and loving our neighbor and serving and building up the body of Christ and abiding in the word and being prayerfully dependent and proclaiming Christ, God is going to put our gifts that he's given us to use and he's going to smoke out any that we need to know about. All right. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to consider what Paul has to say about how we rightly handle the gifts of the Spirit and how we wrongly handle the gifts of the Spirit. The first thing I should mention is that the local church is the context, the proving ground for the right biblically sound use of spiritual gifts. The church worldwide is one body with Christ as its one and only head. But it is in the context of the local church that that oneness is continually put to the test and put on display. Here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, uh, where in many parts of the Metroplex there are several churches per square mile, it's very easy for a believer who, who is unhappy in his relationships with other people in his, his or her church to just go down the street and find another church. But every time that happens, every time that's the reason, it's a victory for division and not for unity. To rightly handle every gift, we must rightly value unity. We talked a lot about that last time. The first thing that each of us must embrace is that our purpose in the, in the handling of the gifts that God has given has to be his purpose. It has to match up with the Holy Spirit's purpose. And his purpose that we saw in this passage, especially verse 11, is the common good. 
It's the building up of the body of Christ. When we get to chapter 14, we'll see that over and over. The building up, the edification of the body of Christ. As one. He he builds up his church as one in unity. And we'll talk about where that building ends up, what the end point of that is in just a moment. In verse 7, he says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All right. I mentioned last time, spiritual gifts have the miraculous effect of reversing the curse right here and right now in the community of the saints. At Babel, God created diversity in order to create division. God created diversity in order to create division. He turned the one language of all mankind into a multitude of different languages, and he used that very deliberately as the catalyst for separating people into groups and scattering them over the face of the whole earth. Read Genesis 10 and 11. That's the point of those chapters. Okay, that was a curse, not a blessing. It was a judgment of God against the arrogant self-worship and self-reliance of human beings. But now, in the new redeemed community, which is the church of Jesus Christ, (laughs) the Holy Spirit creates diversity to nurture unity. He uses a diversity of gifts to make us interdependent and thus to drive us toward greater unity in the body of Christ. That's a blessing, not a curse. Now, if you and I are handling the gifts of the Spirit in a way that that builds up the unity of of the church, then we are rightly handling those gifts. If we handle the gifts of the Spirit the way the Corinthians were, some of them, in a way that divides rather than unites the church, we are most certainly wrongly handling those gifts. Now the next point is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. To rightly handle every gift, we must rightly value every member of the body. I never cease to be amazed at how easy it is for me to impose my own tunnel vision on a passage of Scripture. And if you're a teacher, you struggle with that too, I know. Because the first and last parts of this chapter talk so much about spiritual gifts, (laughs) I have always understood Paul's metaphorical discussion in the middle about body parts to be all about spiritual gifts, about how we value our own and others' gifts, as if the eye were a metaphor for one kind of gift and the ear another kind of gift, and the foot another, and the hand another. And of course, I, I recognize, and I've recognized for a long time, there's a difference between members of the body and gifts given to those members, but I still had a skewed understanding of what Paul's point was in the middle of this chapter. As I pondered and prayed through the passage this time around, God sorted me out on something that may be blatantly obvious to all the rest of you, <laughs> and that is that in verses 12 through 26, which make up nearly half of this chapter, a chapter, by the way, that has more to say about spiritual gifts than any other chapter in the Bible. In these 15 verses, Paul never once mentions any gift of the Spirit, and he never even uses the word gift. 
You know which word he uses 13 times in these verses? Member. Member. Far more times than in any other passage of the New Testament. Guys, these verses are not fundamentally about rightly valuing gifts. They're about rightly valuing people who receive gifts from the Holy Spirit. It's about rightly valuing your fellow members of the body of Christ, your joint heirs with Christ of God. Now that doesn't mean that Paul has radically changed the subject and then comes back to it at the end of the chapter. He has spiritual gifts very much in mind here, but he's zeroing in in verses 12 to 26 on the failure that causes us to badly mishandle the gifts of the Spirit with the result that we create division where God intends to create unity. And that failure, beloved, is a failure to value every saint as God values each saint. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul gives a two-part command. And I love the ESV version of this. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. That NASB that I memorized a long time ago says give preference to one another in honor, but that outdo really nails it. The word honor there, it refers to the value that we assign to someone or something. The worth. Okay? That's what that word means. It's actually often used in financial terms. But the, the idea here is the worth, the value that we assign to someone or something. And the value that Paul's talking about both there in Romans 10 and here in 1 Corinthians 12 is not the value that we assign to various gifts of the Spirit. It is the value that we assign to people, <laughs> to one another in the body of Christ. And that's a big deal. It's not some minor point. It is the point. Let me put it another way. Verses 12 to 26 aren't about assigning equal value to each spiritual gift. When my brain was still intent on making the passage say that, <laughs> gave me a lot of heartburn to see that at the end of the chapter, Paul distinguishes between greater and lesser gifts. It's like, what, what, are, what are you doing here? Why would he tell us to treat every, every gift as equal to every other gift and then immediately draw a distinction between greater and lesser gifts. Well, that's not what he's doing. What Paul is requiring of every single one of us here in verses 12 to 26 is that we assign the same value and thus show the same care. Those are his words. Show the same care to every member of the body of Christ. Now I want you to listen again to verses 12 through 26 that Joe just read. As I read them again, listen for Paul's emphasis on our assessment, our valuation, not of spiritual gifts, but of the members of the body of Christ, the people. I'm going to start with verse 11 so that you can see the transition that happens between verse 11 and verse 12 from talking about gifts to talking about members, about people. Verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing gifts to each one individually as he wills. Verse 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, 
and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. You know, it's very important. Paul, Paul is saying the body works the way it does because Jesus is the way he is. By one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, he goes on, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, <laughs> if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And then verse 18 is central. It says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. <laughs> and then he goes back to the metaphor. The first time around, in the metaphor, he is talking about how we undervalue our own place in the body. Now he's talking about how we undervalue other people's place in the body. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the, of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God, here, now we're back to God again, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor, honor to the member which lacked. And then the so that. So that there may be no division in the body. We're right back to unity again. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And again, the word for honor that we saw in Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in, in showing honor, occurs three times in, this, in these verses I just read, and it means to assign value. Here in verse 23, Paul points out our tendency to deem certain members of the body to be less honorable. And literally, it the word means without honor. We treat some in the body as if they're, some members of the body as if they're without honor, without value. Throughout this passage, Paul keeps turning our attention away from our grievously flawed standard for evaluating the worth of our brothers and sisters in Christ to God's flawless standard. In verses 12 and 13, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then he says, By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That probably sounds familiar if you've gotten into Galatians before, because in Galatians 3, 26 to 29, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Brother Keith said that this morning. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. And he adds here, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Okay, so here's God's standard. Here's God's standard for assigning value to the members of the body. In the body of Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or a rich man. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. We've all been baptized into one body in Christ and we drink of one spirit. If you or I assign a higher or lower value to one believer than we do to another believer, we are replacing God's reality with our own imagined reality. Now in verses 14 to 21, Paul uses this metaphor of the human body, the body parts, to point out what's wrong with our standard so that we may embrace God's standard for assessing one another's value. Now, this applies both to how we value ourselves and how we value others. Uh, by the way, I should say that when it comes to valuing ourselves, that's a, God means something very different by that than the world does. This world is eaten up with, with finding your own value. The only value that I possess is Christ in me. We talked this morning, I was lost and dead. Dead people don't provide value. God had to give it to me, and it's his, okay? But he intends for us to know that he has given it. He intends for us, for every single one of you, and for me to know that he has made us valuable, eternally valuable, as his instruments to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. He intends for us to know that. Now, Paul starts with how we undervalue ourselves. Verses 14 to 17. The body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. You get the point here? He says it doesn't really matter what you think of yourself. It matters what God thinks of you. It matters what God declares to be true of you. Saying you're not a part of the body doesn't make you not a part of the body. If, I, if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, anybody remember Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc.? Big eye with a couple of little feet. Anyway, if the, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? In Paul's day, just as in our day, guys, <laughs> Some of us have the tendency to see ourselves as unnecessary to the life and ministry of the church. To use Paul's metaphor, we say, the hand is really important, but I'm not a hand, I'm just a foot. Or we say, the eye, the eye is, is important. I'm not an eye, I'm just an ear. Surely the body can do without an ear. How many fly balls do you think an outfielder is going to catch if he has hands but not feet? <laughs> what if you had eyes but not ears and the driver of a truck, an 18-wheeler with failed brakes, was just outside your peripheral vision furiously honking his air horns 
very loud air horns at you to let you know that if you entered the intersection you're about to enter, you would surely die. Would you appreciate your ears? Brothers and sisters, if anyone hearing this message thinks that you have nothing to contribute to the work that God is doing through this body of believers, you should see this passage as God grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, think again. In God's design for his church, <laughs> there is no such thing as a useless Christian. And that, beloved, means that there should never be any such thing as a benched Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who is supposed to be served by the church without serving the church. If your only involvement in the lives of, of the people in this community of saints in which God has placed you is to attend services once a week or perhaps once every several weeks, and if the only time you have any interaction with other believers in your church is on your way in and out of the meetings on Sunday mornings, you are at cross purposes with the one who saved you and made you a vitally important part of the body of Christ. Before Paul moves from how we undervalue ourselves to how we undervalue others, he turns our attention again to God's standard for assigning value to each member. And, he, and I'll read this again in verses 18 to 20. He says, but now God. Anytime you see those words, but God or but now God, that means pay attention. But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. He's very purposeful. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. Because God has made all of us one in Christ, it makes no sense for us to assign a higher or lower value to part of one. In verses 21 to 25, Paul uses the same body metaphor to address how we undervalue other believers. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And then this is very interesting what he says here. Those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become more presentable. He says, that's what we do. And then he says, whereas our our more presentable members have no need of that, all that decorating. But then God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacks so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Here's what I think Paul is doing. You probably don't consider your feet to be the most attractive part of your body, right? Now, consider in Paul's day that the roads that people walked on were mostly made of the same dirt that beasts of burden traveled over. And most people wore sandals. So whatever attractiveness feet might have had was kind of overwhelmed by a lot of unattractive stuff. Now, think for a moment about how much money is spent in our day on shoes. There are some in this room who have dozens of pairs of shoes, right? Why, why do we do that? To make our feet more presentable. That doesn't include how much is spent on pedicures and nail polish for the occasions when feet are not covered in shoes. Now, Paul is using the metaphor of how we 
regularly deal with the less presentable parts of our own bodies to make a marvelous point about how God deals with the members of Christ's body that we undervalue. Not that he undervalues, that we undervalue. God levels the playing field by giving more abundant honor to those members that we tend to see as without honor. You know what that means? That means if you and I place little value on a member of the body of Christ, you can bet that God places very great value on that person and he's going to be at work to change our approach. And his objective in doing so is that the members may have the same care for one another. God's objective is that you and I will assign no greater or lesser value to one member of the body of Christ than to any other member of the body. We'll have the same care for one another. It's interesting that word care sometimes is translated anxiety. It's sometimes translated concern. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul talks about his concern for the body, that's, that's one of the words that's used there. We're supposed to care about each other's well-being. We're supposed to be deeply invested in each other's well-being. And Paul says that we're supposed to do that in such a way that nobody is left out. Nobody. In the next verse, he says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Again, Paul's saying each of us should value every member as God does, as God does. When we do, you know what that means? It means we will be in the trenches of life together with each other. We will exclude no child of God from our prayers and from our genuine, active, sacrificial love for them on Christ's behalf. We will suffer with those who suffer. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. If a brother or sister suffers with mental illness or physical impairment or social awkwardness or anything else, we will know that that brother or sister is every bit as valuable a member of the body of Christ as we and every other member are. Nobody is set aside in God's design. If we're not doing that, if there are individuals in the flock of God that we're excluding from our genuine, active, sacrificial love, then we're replacing God's standard with our standard. Again, I don't want to miss the connection with spiritual gifts here because that's the context. We tend to overvalue the members of the body who have very visible gifts, especially the gifts that are on display when we meet together as a body. We tend to undervalue the members of the body with less visible gifts. Both of those errors should be absolutely unacceptable to us individually and as a church. But again, it's really important for us to recognize the problem Paul's addressing isn't the value we place on gifts, it's the value we place on people. Gifts are just one of the criteria, one of the criteria that we use to undervalue or overvalue people. God intends for us to know that there are no second or third or fourth born sons in the house of God. They don't exist. Every son and daughter of God has been baptized into the one and only Son of God. What is his, as this was said this morning too, what is his is now ours. Together. We're not competing for it. 
It's ours together as one. His standing, Christ's standing in the eyes of, of his Father has become our standing. His eternal inheritance has become our eternal inheritance together in him. All right. Paul's final command in this passage is earnestly desire the greater gifts. This gets pretty interesting. And that's in the last, right in the last verse. All of the implied exhortations earlier in the chapter have to do with how each of us treats every other member of the body of Christ. They, they, all, the, all the exhortations before this are kind of one another exhortations. They're about how we individually treat each other. But the exhortation in verse 31 is actually the first technical imperative in this whole chapter. He took 31 verses to get to a direct command. That should tell us that the command's important. And it's addressed to y'all, plural. It's a corporate command. As the body of Christ, we together are to desire earnestly the greater gifts. This applies most practically at the level of each local church. Many of the first generation churches were house churches. Some of those probably were quite small in terms of the number of people in a given gathering of saints. But whether you're part of a large church or part of a small church, Paul's saying everyone in the flock that you're in should earnestly desire that the gifts that best equip the flock to do the work of Christ will be present in that local body. And which gifts are those? Which are the greater gifts? Well, twice in these last six verses of the chapter, 27 to 31, Paul presents specific gifts in a definite order. He even uses the words first, second, third, and then. Okay, First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then, miracles. Gifts of healing. And finally, at the bottom of both lists that he presents, tongues. Now that's going to be a big deal when we get to chapter 13, 14 because the Corinthians were taking that one at the bottom and they were putting it at the top. Twice he gives that list. The only deviation is he also adds in one of the lists interpretation of tongues. Now, the restatement of this list of gifts in that exact order from first to last is supposed to clarify Paul's reference to greater gifts. We'll see later when we get to chapter 14 while he puts, why he puts tongues at the bottom. Uh, and I'm not going to take the time to, to look there, but if you, if you look at chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you will find that Paul says tongues edify the person who has the gift of tongues. They edify the person speaking in tongues. But Prophecy edifies the body. And so he puts prophecy up high and tongues down low. Okay, that's important. Multiple times in that chapter, you see that the goal of desiring the greater gifts is that the body will be built up. The body will be edified. All right. That's the criterion on which Paul distinguishes between greater and lesser gifts. Does it edify the whole body does it build up the church. Uh, the same three gifts that Paul mentions as the top three here at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 appear again in a short list in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul adds a fourth gift there, and that gift is evangelism. Uh, I'm going to read verses 11 to 16 of Ephesians 4 
And, and as, as I do, listen for the purpose of the gifts. Listen for the purpose of the gifts. God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until, and here's the end point, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then a few verses later, he says, we're all growing up into one head, who is Christ. He says, as he goes on in chapter 4, that in order for the body to work right, that depends on that the body is fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And that cause, that, that working together causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So again, the purpose for which God gives specially gifted apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to the church is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building of the body of Christ. There are two things there. Edification and effectiveness. Edification and effectiveness. The body is to be effective in the work that's been assigned to it. The greater gifts are the gifts that, it, that equip the saints. And there's something significant that I want to point out, both in the, in the gifts that Paul mentions in, at, at the top of the list in 1 Corinthians 12 and that he mentions in Ephesians 11. What distinguishes those gifts from other gifts? Let me put it a different way. What do those gifts have in common? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher. What do those gifts have in common? Building up of the saints. They are all, by the way, they all have to do with the ministry of the word, of the written word. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And that's important. That's why up there where it says love God and love your neighbor, there's a Bible in that same frame. Notice, by the way, that even the spiritual gift of evangelism is given to the body to equip the body and to build up the body into maturity as one new man in Christ. That's very significant. Bear with me just a little longer here, guys. I generally think of evangelism as a gift that's designed to add people to the body, not to build up the body. But Paul puts it in a list of gifts that equip the body for the work of service, that equip the church to do its mission. And I believe that points out another marvelous truth about, spirit, about spiritual gifts. Every individual gift is a special enablement to do something that every Christian is supposed to be doing. Let me say that again. Every single gift of the Spirit is a special enablement to do something that every Christian is supposed to do. Giving, helps, service, teaching, evangelism, even faith are all identified in the New, in the New Testament as gifts of the Spirit. Does that mean that if, that, that if Lily has the gift of faith, I don't have to have, have any faith? Does it, does it mean that uh, if I don't have the spiritual gift of giving, I get to keep all my money to myself? Does it mean if I don't have the spiritual gift of helps, I get to be unhelpful? Or if I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, I don't have to talk to people about Jesus? May it never be. The Holy Spirit gives every individual gift to accomplish the, the work that that gift specially enables, not only 
through the person who has received the gift, but also through those who have not received that particular gift. So why does one person get the gift and the other doesn't? So that person can help equip the body in that aspect of ministry. You with me? Let me give you an example. The gifted evangelists in our flock at CBC have been powerfully used by God to sharpen me in the work of evangelism, especially in recent years. Even though I don't believe that evangelism is one of my spiritual gifts, it, it is nonetheless the commission of the church and of every believer to be Christ's witnesses to the lost in all the world. So a few days ago, an exterminator came to my house to deal with our carpenter ant problem. By the way, that's, who named them carpenter ants? You ever, know, you ever known a carpenter who eats wood? <laughs> Before the exterminator left, when it came time to settle up the bill, I handed him a copy of Living Water, Gospel of John with a great gospel presentation at the end of it. And I asked him to read it with the purpose of meeting the person that it presents. It wasn't hard, but I've spent a lot of years not doing stuff like that. He received it very graciously, and as he was leaving after, after we did the check and everything, he said, I plan to read that. And I pray that he does. If it weren't for the constant example of brothers like Ken and Jonathan and several others in this church to challenge and remind me of every believer's responsibility to introduce other people to Christ, I would very possibly have let that opportunity slip by. That's God using a spiritual gift to bless the one who doesn't have it and to stretch him and use him. Okay, we're out of time. Let me just recap the main points and then I'll pray. First, the local church is the proving, proving ground for the right handling of spiritual gifts. What we do here is, this is the acid test of everything that's in this chapter. To rightly handle every gift, we must assign the same value to the unity of the body that God assigns. To rightly handle every gift, we must assign the same value to every member of the body that God assigns. And finally, we should desire earnestly for this church the gifts that equip us to know and to proclaim the word of life in this world. Dear Father, we trust you, not us, both to give and to put to use the miraculous gifts that you so graciously give each one of us to make us one body and to make us useful for your eternal purposes. Humble us to value one another as you do, knowing that it's only Christ in us who makes us your treasure forever. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.